welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. I'm the editor, producer and host for the programme. The podcast explores why combatants in armed conflict flight and endure and, in some situations, other combatants desert, mutiny or refuse to fight. For more information, go to the website at combatmorale.com. This is episode three, season one, and today I talk to Professor Kelly Mesurek, Professor of History at Walsh University in Ohio in the USA. Kelly is an expert on African-American service personnel who served with the Union Army during the United States Civil War. I spoke to her about what motivated these individuals to enlist and serve in blue during that conflict. She spoke to me from her office in America. Kelly, welcome to the Combat Motivation Podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in African-American combatant and the US Civil War? Well, first of all, thank you, Tom, for inviting me. I really appreciate the effort to talk about my research and black men, military. So a little bit about me. I received my PhD from Kent State University in 2008, but the journey was a very long one before that. And when I was beginning my work on my dissertation, I actually started by researching the five Confederate secretaries of war. I thought I was going to look at the War Department and evaluate Jefferson Davis and his relationship with men. And I was about a year into that research and not really enthusiastic about it when my advisor, uh, Leonie Hudson, who just retired from Kent State, asked if I could help with uh, updating a bibliography on the United States color troops. He was writing an article. And this gave me a, a very nice diversion and made me feel like I was producing something. But in that, I came upon the 5th USCT, originally the 127th Ohio Volunteer Entry, and I knew about them. I wasn't surprised to find this Ohio regiment included in the scholarship on United States culture, but I saw a reference to the 27th, and I had not heard of them. So I'm a lifelong Ohioan. I was at the stage, ABD, in my dissertation in Civil War, 19th century U.S. history, and I hadn't heard about the 27th, and I was uh, surprised and kind of upset. Why didn't we know about this other regiment that you raised in Ohio, the 5th and then the 27th? So I spent some time looking into it. And when I felt confident there was enough uh, information that I might change topics, I went to my advisor and asked, did he mind if I shifted gears? He was probably relieved that I was going to actually work on something. And so that's when it started. So about 20 years ago, I started researching the 27th. And by the time I turned the dissertation into a book, which was published in 2000. I had expanded my interest uh, beyond the 27th. I still research the 27th. I will always read 27th. But now I look at the larger uh, issues of uh, African-American men and their families uh, during and after. Now, before we get, sorry, before the outbreak of the Civil War, what was the size and geography of the African-American communities who lived in what could be called the Union side or the North, which, which for listeners is around sort of North and Northeastern um, United States? What was their sort of distribution across the... Across the so, in 1860, so in 1860, there were about four and a half million people of African descent in the United States and territories. About 90% of these people were enslaved. So we're talking about significant uh, 
number of individuals who are in states that either seceded and became part of the Confederacy or the border states. When we look at that almost 10% of free African-Americans who lived in the North uh, and in the Midwest, less than half of free Blacks lived in those areas. So we're talking about 225,000-ish African-Americans living in the area that would be in the Union. Now, when you add the border states, that rises significantly, of course. But on the eve of Civil War, we're talking about few uh, free African-Americans in this area of the North and the Midwest. So what was the extent of military service by military service by African-American men in the U.S. military before the outbreak of the Civil War in 1861? So we'll start with the um, legal aspect of that. So in 1792, the federal government banned uh, African-Americans from the army. And for my research, this was followed up in Ohio in 1803 with a militia law that banned uh, African-Americans from serving in Ohio. Having said that, despite these federal and state laws, African-American men served in every military uh, combat uh, war uh, for the United States from the colonial period up until the eve of the American War. So obviously there were ways to get around these laws. The Navy, on the other hand, had um, almost continual Uh, service of African-American men, again, going from the colonial era, representing uh, colonies that became states during the American Revolution, and then um, on the eve of civil war, they will be included in larger numbers percentage-wise before you see African men. So the presence is always there. You can see men, African-American men, during the civil war uh, who relate back to family members or men they descended from that had served before them, and then later in life when they are veterans, their families continuing to make that recognition that, that they possibly... So we get to the outbreak of the Civil War in 1861. Now, why do black soldiers enlist in the Union Army? What sort of numbers? Are- so in the end, we'll have about 200,000 men, uh, African-American men, men of African descent, uh, that will serve. This is close to 10% of numbers. About 179,000 serve in the Army, and somewhere around 19,000, serve in the Navy. That number uh, not as defined. Now, these men offer, uh, in the Army, offer to serve in April of 1861 uh, throughout the North and Midwest. You see men, um, when Lincoln makes that first call, they're, they're denied at the state level access. Again, largely because of state laws, but because of the um, federal law of 1792, they're turned away. So these numbers, again, about 10% of the Union Army uh, outside of the Navy are going to come, for the most part, midway through the war and after. So why did they they enlist? What was their motivation to serve in an army that in many ways didn't want, certainly in the early days? Right. And we can find evidence throughout the time of not being wanted or welcomed throughout the war, uh, but particularly um, early on, as you um, stated. So so why? On one hand, we can say that the motivations to enlist um, echo uh, very similar to why white men joined the Union Army. Now, if we would list them, we might put them in different orders. But in the end, 
they're very similar. So uh, at the top is this idea of abolition or freedom. So men who joined to free themselves, men who joined to free their family, uh, coming out of those uh, slave states or those border states. The biggest, if not biggest motivation for many of these men. For those men that are free before, or have freed themselves before uh, the war begins, uh, the idea of contributing to the end of slavery, to the abolition of slavery, uh, even though that's not something that Lincoln is putting as, right, his reasons for war, it's preserving the union. When Lincoln speaks publicly, speaks to his uh, advisors, it's it's about preserving the union. Uh, For African-Americans in April of 1861, they know what the potential, and so those that are free uh, already see this as a possibility contributing to ending slavery, or possibly they may be free but have family members who are enslaved, and so fighting their family members. This is going to be something that's at the top of why African-American men serve. That doesn't mean all serve for that reason, but it certainly is, is overwhelming for uh, a cause. We can also see very strongly, though, this idea of citizenship, of this idea that despite the Dred Scott decision of 1857, right, the Supreme Court decision uh, in the United States that stated that people of African descent were not citizens nor would ever be considered. Again, uh, for many of these men, it's not written in stone the way that that case made it sound. And so again, this is an opportunity to prove that one is a member of of this United States. And we can see this in some of their letters, whether they're private or whether they are written to newspapers, that they're fighting for their United States. They, They claim that, their country. So there's a little patriotism in that, but it's about this claim being a member. Uh, And so citizenship is up there. When we get towards the end of the war, you see even more than connecting that to suffrage or voting as well. Now that we have shown that we can fight, that we're willing to come out in uh, numbers that are, by the way, um, higher per capita than white uh, union men, that they they not only have proven themselves, but they're dues of voting. So so these are very important uh, to many of the men who would join. Money is something else. And there are uh, individuals who don't want to accept that money was a reason or uh, like to argue that they were not paid very much. And so really how much money, but when you really look at 19th century African-American population, uh, those that are free, that have to earn a living, uh, if they had full time work, yes, they could make more money than serving in but we know that's not the case for most African-American men, that they do not have steady employment for a multiple race. And so this idea of a steady uh, potential income was enticing, particularly when you add bounty. And bounties uh, are going to um, eventually in the war offered equally to black men, but also some of the states offer really enticing bounties. Substitution money, uh, again, in Northern Midwestern states could be very high. And so money is a factor. And again, we can see this in some of the language, whether it be letters to the public in newspapers, speeches uh, by black leaders in the North and the Midwest, but also in private 
letters, uh, men who are asking their wives or mothers, you know, have you put that money I sent home away? I want to buy a house. I want to buy land and a family too. So money is definitely one of the motivating factors for these men. There's also a little bit of that idea of adventure or escape. So think of the 15-year-olds that are running off without mom and dad's, which, by the way, is not okay for federal government. Uh, and, and, and so these young men, and, and again, there's an accounting. They leave an accounting that, hey, I just really wanted to get away. I wanted to have, they thought, adventure or fun, uh, you know, that kind of naive idea of war, uh, but getting away from mom and dad. Uh, that there is that. There are men who want to escape other things, maybe a marriage. A man that serves in the 27th, for example, who is facing potential uh, prison time. And so he signs up just so he can avoid that and the problems that he's having. So this idea of adventure or escape, uh, again, what we're talking about here are the same reasons why white men joined the Union Army, just again, maybe in a different order. I want to add, though, that we also have men that are going not because they want the draft applies to African-American men uh, in those northern and western states. And so we keep black men drafted uh, at the same rate, uh, percentage wise, right, based on their pocket uh, within different states. Um, but you also have forced conscription. And we don't talk enough about this uh, when a war, but there is significant forced conscription of African-American men in the Confederate States. And some of this comes from those uh, Northern recruiters who have permission to go into Confederate States uh, because if you look at the population discussed earlier, many states in the North and Midwest have very small number of African-American men of military age. And when you're looking at a regiment needing uh, a thousand men at minimum, uh, they are looking elsewhere. And sometimes recruiters are going to be aggressive. But we also see uh, around contraband camps where you see runaway enslaved people taking their own freedom, right? And then following Union armies and, and eventually becoming large enough in numbers that the federal government has to do something. And, and so see white officers going into camps, really not giving men of military age the option not. So again, we need to talk a little bit more about that. That's not a, a motivation to say. Uh, but, but again, the diversity of reasons. These, these men are, are not one homogeneous group that join all for the same. And I think uh, we need to recognize it's very personal decision making. So tell me about the units that they joined. Now, were the units that were raised uh, to, to obviously accommodate these men um, segregated? So yes. When the federal government creates the Bureau of Color Troops in May of 83, it lays out the requirements uh, for black enlistment. Now, before this, uh, there had been organized uh, troops of, of black men uh, before Lincoln makes this okay. Uh, but once we start to see the regulations, May of 1863, the Bureau of Colored Troops is part of the War Department. And uh, it will be in charge of overseeing the recruitment of all black regiments. And they will serve under the federal government instead of the states, like we see for uh, Union and Confederate. Now, um, just an aside, there were a few that retained their state designation. So most people are uh, aware of the 54th message because of the movie Glory. Uh, they're going to retain that state designation, a few others. 
But for the most part uh, of the uh, over 160 uh, regiments, they are federal and they are segregated. So black men serve as privates and they serve as non-committed officers. And then you have white commissioned officers. And these white officers also have to go through a process different than officers, regular union uh, structure uh, from the states. And, and they have to test, they have to be selected. There were uh, a few African-American men who are commissioned. Uh, if you look at the Louisiana Native Guards, for example, of men will lose their commission. And then towards the end of the war, we get uh, a few others. Uh, they're not going to be combat. We'll see some uh, army doctors, since, for example. But for the most part, only a non-officership uh, was available to African men. So they're segregated. They are denied access, for the most part, to commissioned office. They are going to serve in mostly infantry units. There are about 130 uh, that will be fully organized infantry units. Uh, there are artillery, one light artillery, and 14 heavy artillery units. And there are six cavalry regiments plus the 5th Massachusetts Cavalry, uh, which is black cavalry. And so this is where they serve for the most part. Uh, there are a few independent batteries, and then, of course, the men in the Navy uh, who cannot be segregated ship. Uh, they're denied access to higher ranks. Uh, uh, this segregation, uh, of course, is in place for Lincoln's point of view to pacify white Northerners who are unhappy with the Emancipation Proclamation, who do not believe black men are capable of serving. So this is the way that Lincoln tries to negotiate support place them a segregated regiment. There's also the belief that they will not fight, that they will not be used to fight, uh, that they will or fatigue duty, that they will do more guard duty. And it is true, uh, but you're going to see black men involved in over 500 battles of war and for the most part serve equal, if not in some cases, better, right? You're seeing very, again, similar numbers back when taken on the battle. So I, I was just wondering, given that units were raised on a federal level, does that mean that they were recruited from across the United States um, or were they generally recruited from a local area? I'm just thinking about the unit, the 27th United States Colored Troops that you've done a lot of work on, whether that sort of local um, and basis of recruitment actually featured in these units and whether that shaped their sort of morale and their sort of esprit de corps, so to speak. So yes and no. Uh, for the Ohio troops that I study, the 27th, a large percentage of these men are Ohioans or have recently come to Ohio. So, so there is a significant number of men who are crossing the Ohio River from Kentucky and, and uh, West Virginia. Uh, that are coming in because they realize that they have the opportunity uh, to join up one of the regiments there. But overall, these are Ohioans and they are raised together. And so if you look uh, at most of the recruiting for the 27th, it takes place in Southwest Ohio, uh, the Southwest quadrant of the state. And this is because the 54th and 55th Massachusetts has already come through and taken uh, many of the black men in the more urban settings of Cleveland, for example, uh, Toledo, um, Cleveland, Columbus, that's right. Uh, so, so these more rural areas, the Southwest Quadrant, are, are not quite as tapped. And so many of the men from the 27th are going to come from here, and they are mostly rural. Uh, again, this is a little different than many of the northern 
uh, regiments that are in areas where uh, blacks tended to live, black Americans tended to live in more urban settings. So it's a little different for the 27th, but mostly Ohio men. Now, other Northern regiments, Midwestern regiments, because they had uh, trouble filling their, their numbers, if, especially if they came in later, again, the 54th and 55th Massachusetts, they, they, they come out of Massachusetts and they go through New England, they come through New York, and they come across uh, through the Midwest recruiting. You're going to see uh, some of the other Northern regiments being more uh, mixed areas uh, to fill their numbers. Some are going sending recruiters into the Southern states, but uh, we see examples of these regiments once they leave their state, whether it be Pennsylvania, Ohio, Illinois, and once they go into the South, and, and a lot of these men are going into the Virginia, Petersburg and Richmond uh, fronts, uh, they'll recruit in those areas as well. So on one hand, we could have um, several companies from a Northern or Midwestern regiment where the men are all coming from the same geographic area. And then you could have later companies being made up then of more diverse geographic locations. And I mean diverse being whether it be your own state, another Northern Midwestern state, or again, possibly Southern states. Now for those regiments that are formed in the Confederacy, um, they will often be associated with the geographic area, whether it be a state or a region. But again, they're going to be picking up men as they move, if they move throughout the South. Uh, we can see something a little similar with Navy, at least once the war begins, right? You see a significant number of men uh, from New York and uh, Philadelphia area that are joining the Navy. Uh, for the Midwest, those that live along the Ohio River who are already boats, see the, those men tending to join the Navy. Uh, and then a little later, uh, along the Mississippi, the Gulf, and the Atlantic, Southern uh, African-American then. So there is this geographic uh, component that we have to address. Um, but the idea that African-American men um, are all joining and know no one is simply inaccurate. Um, there are some men who later uh, in life, when asked for uh, their pension application, uh, will state that they didn't really know anybody in their regiment, but overwhelmingly most knew several. Or uh, what's really fascinating is the number of men who then meet family members uh, when they have maybe ended up uh, outside of Petersburg. And so uh, men in the 27th, for example, writing home and talking about uh, men in the 5th uh, that uh, they knew or were related to their father like that. So there, there is a lot of connection, family and friends uh, for many people. So moving on to the actual war itself, what factors sustained African-American men um, in uniform when they were fighting and dealing with the rigours of active service? So I think that, again, there is, you know, this motivation, but then there's also threats uh, that factor into uh, motivation. So uh, let's talk about a couple of, of these. Uh, religion is important uh, to these men in the sense of some believing that it was God's way of ending slavery. For others, it is their connection, their family and their community. And so there is um, uh, information going back and forth 
whether it be sending hymn books or whether it's soldiers asking for prayers. Uh, and so religion is going to play an important part for many of the men to endure their time away, whether they joined because they believed it was their duty um, to God or once they're there, does it help sustain them? So religion is a significant uh, part of that experience. We also um, need to look at this idea of proving oneself. Again, at the beginning of uh, the Civil War, white citizens did not believe that black men were capable of being soldiers, whether they were perceived to be uh, not intelligent enough or not brave enough that they would take the opportunity to run away instead of fighting. Uh, so, so all of the beliefs that are held overwhelmingly by white Americans this time, uh, once in service, black men recognize the needs of them to prove this wrong. So there's a very, very deep motivation uh, to prove oneself on the battlefield, to prove that one is not only brave and competent, uh, but that they are, again, I mentioned earlier, members of the United States. They are citizens. And for 19th century Americans, military service is the ultimate way of demonstrating ours for men. And so that's a really strong motivation. We see this a lot with Black leadership, men like Frederick Douglass, but also Black uh, clergymen across the North and the Midwest in, in their sermons and in their uh, speeches and their letters, newspapers. Um, this is um, at the forefront of, of why Black men should enlist and why Black men must endure uh, what they face uh, during wartime. So things like desertion happen for African-American men. Uh, we need to do a lot more work on that, but numbers are pretty similar to ratio of white uh, Union soldiers, although many claim it's higher. Again, uh, racially motivated ideas about this. Uh, but this could be quite uh, devastating for um, whether it be a state or a community level uh, that black men were not demonstrating whether it be bravery or commitment to cause. And so um, these things tie together. Bounty jumping is another uh, issue. Those men that sign up uh, either receive a substitution fee or a bounty fee, and then instead of showing up to muster in, uh, they take off. Again, we know this is a problem throughout the North, uh, Midwest. But again, for the Black community, this is uh, something that would damage that potential gain or reputation. And so there's pressure, an added pressure, I think, for these men uh, to make sure they stay motivated or they prove uh, that they truly want to be there. This idea um, of loyalty uh, to the nation and bravery and, and, and how they can demonstrate this, uh, at least early on, is limited for many of these men because African-American troops were not uh, used as much in battle. Again, their belief that they would uh, serve in the back line. And, and so at times, the, uh, some of these soldiers um, exert the desire uh, to be in battle for that reason. Of course, being human beings, uh, some, some men do not want to go into battle, right? Uh, once you've seen what happened, uh, whether you were in the battle or supply lines, I think of the 27th, they're protecting supply lines going into Petersburg. They're seeing wagon trip wounded men 
uh, they they are camping on old battlefields. And they realize horrors of, of war. So again, not everyone is saying they want to actually in battle. But again, that ability or the desire to prove oneself is limited for some of these African men because of that. And so the idea of motivation and what keeps them going and what they want to prove or what they want to contribute is sometimes challenging for for them because of these reasons. What I, I, One thing I was interested in was whether the actual sort of loyalty to a given formation, for instance, the 27th uh, USBT, did this sort of spoo the call with a unit actually give them this identity. I'm just thinking about a very similar example in the Second World War with the uh, Japanese Americans serving in the 442nd Combat Regiment and how they became very, very proud of this formation. And I wonder whether similar things happened in, um, with black soldiers in the, in the Union Army during the So in some ways it will be less because of the lack of opportunities on the battlefield and generally that idea of uh, identifying with your regiment because of success in battle. So if you think about the 54th, uh, they are able for various uh, reasons, opportunities uh, to have a more cohesive identity uh, for their action. And we can see this in a few others, uh, but the, uh, the, the the knowledge back home is also reduced. And so. For example, the 5th USCT, another regiment from Ohio, you're going to see uh, four men earn Medal of Honors because of their actions at Chafin's Farm. But few people really hear about this. And so the, the idea or the ability to have this kind of identity around your success uh, as part of the 5th or part of the 4th is dependent on that as well. I think there is more of a recognition or cohesiveness with the men one knows in one's own regiment or one's community. So if, uh, for example, you're from Ross County, Ohio, there are African-American men serving in over a dozen regiments and in the Navy. And so it's more the uh, collective uh, community, um, possibly in the case of Ross County, uh, around uh, the, the church, the black church. And so there, again, that connection is where some of that identity comes from. And then, as we talked about earlier, there are many of these uh, black regiments that do not have as much cohesion. They may not have as many people from the same area, and it's going to be much. So again, it's challenged in ways that for white regiments um, is a blessing and a curse, right? If a, if a white regiment does poorly, everyone's going to know in their hometown and it's going to be in multiple newspapers. And so they develop a naked connection. Uh, this just doesn't happen or as many black. What's the role of coercive uh, measures taken by the army? Deep soldiers at the front time thinking about court martials and punishments that would follow from that. Is this a major factor in keeping black soldiers fighting? So there is... Uh, there is a racial difference, some of the actions by military, uh, under military justice. So, for example, uh, a higher percentage of black soldiers are court martyred. Uh, yet, uh, within certain regiments, and again, I'll speak about the 27th, the court martials that occurred there uh, were overwhelmingly fair in the sense of the trials are held, the evidence is forth, and for the most part, white officer seventh stood up for and defended soldiers in their companies if the actions were not did not merit a court martial and often handled the discipline at the 
uh, for company level. That doesn't mean it happens overall. Again, a higher number of black men who are court-martialed. You have terms of imprisonment, stronger, harsher penalties for Africa. And much of this is based on the belief that these black men, again, either could not or would not uh, follow direction. This is an issue, uh, particularly for those regiments, and it is the majority of regiments, that are composed of formerly men. Um, many accounts of these soldiers believing they left one master for another. They did not see military service in the sense of how uh, white men who had generations of understanding of how military worked, how the military operated. So once they ran away themselves or found themselves in a geographic location covered by the Emancipation Proclamation, many of the formerly enslaved men believed that they were free men and had control over their own destiny. It's going to be a problem uh, when they once again are put under company commanders and regimental commanders. And so this ties into some of this higher rate of uh, punishment charges. On the other hand, uh, particularly for Northern and Midwestern African Americans, by the time we get to the spring of 1865, the summer of 1865, the potential for things like more rewards, like furloughs, are available uh, to these men. And so, again, works both ways. Uh, how the military operates, uh, for the most part, placed black soldiers at a disadvantage, but at times they had opportunity, they could take opportunity. Uh, the thing about furloughs, though, is that for black men serving in, let's say, Virginia or South Carolina, it's very costly to go home. You know, they have to pay for their transportation uh, while they're gone or to and from their homes. And they're, if they're coming to Ohio, for example, Pennsylvania, New York, Boston, it could take uh, a month or two of their pay. And so uh, those men that might apply and be granted sometimes had to make the instead. And my penultimate question is how did the Union milk? I'll start that one in. How did Union military policy actually shape the motivation and morale of black soldiers? I'm sort of thinking in terms of allowances for families and pension and other measures that the government may have taken to encourage people to remain with their youth. So, again, uh, we have uh, positive aspects and then the the day-to-day reality of how this is out. Both state governments and the federal government made promises for provisions for families, maybe freedom for families, equal pay for soldiers uh, early on that are not kept. And so initially black soldiers are paid less than white soldiers at the private level. And while this was not always uh, enforced, black soldiers uh, be charged $3 a month for clothing where white soldiers were given an allowance makes the pay uh, in the end, almost half of what they're getting. Uh, not all regiments deducted for that clothing at the end when the men were um, clustered out, uh, but in many cases they were. And so uh, this was very costly taking the clothing out given that they were doing more fatigue duty, that they were more guard duty. They, they went through clothing quickly. We also have issues, and again, I'll stick with um, Ohio as an example of what's happening in the North and the West. The state of Ohio, uh, had a tax to help support soldiers' families when soldiers left and went to fight. 
they had this at the state level in Ohio, and there was also the potential to have county and local tax to raise money for families. It only applied to Ohio regiments because Black men from Ohio were serving in the federal regiment. Their families did not have access. So there, there is the unequal pay initially, then there is this uh, being left out of some of the state provisions. Counties were unequal at first as well whether they be at the state or local level, and the federal government eventually will equalize in uh, 1864 the bounty system. And so if you served one year, you received $100, two years, $200, and three years, $300 signed up. And this applied to the United States Colored Code. That is going to, when I talked about money earlier, this is really going to encourage African-American men for service. As for the equal pay, uh, in June of 1864, the federal government is going to pass a law to equalize pay, and it will uh, apply to those men free honor uh, for April of 1861, and it will be retroactive. And so those that had joined early were able to get that back pay. Similar to white regiments, if you were a non-commissioned officer in one of the USCT regiments, your pay was higher. Uh, black musicians uh, were paid higher. And so those men who could earn those kinds of promotions uh, benefited from those um, federal regulations. The idea of being treated or recognized as United States soldiers when it came to prisoner of war, again, on paper, uh, is going to look like the Lincoln administration comes out very strongly that black soldiers are soldiers and that they needed to be treated as such and recognized as such after the Confederate government, um, president and Congress make declarations that they will not be treated equally, that they will either be re-enslaved or possibly uh, imprisoned or murdered or put to death. And, and and so, again, military and federal policy is that these black soldiers will be treated equally in this sense of exchange for prisoners. And of course, uh, this is the main contribution to the breakdown of the exchange system. And so black soldiers will find themselves imprisoned, but they will be uh, mistreated uh, not only by their Confederate captor, but by white Union soldiers who are imprisoned and blame these black soldiers for uh, the, the breakdown exchange. And so again, on, on paper, uh, the policy is that they are going to be treated equally, but in reality, suffer. From as far as pensions go, whether or not it's a motivation, uh, at least during the war, is, is not as clear. We see uh, a pension system recognized uh, right when the Civil War begins. The United States uh, includes these volunteers under its umbrella of its uh, regular army pension that was already in pension system that was already in place. Uh, but in 1862, they're going, Congress will change that. Uh, they'll create what's called a general law. And they're going to create this pension system that will specifically focus on war soldiers and sailors. And it explicitly includes African-American men. When 1863 rolls around and you see a true movement towards enlistment. Again, we already had black men in the Navy and we had a few black men already uh, operating outside of uh, federal approval uh, in the Army. We can see African-American families, wives, uh, mothers, uh, seeking pensions uh, in that very early time. So they're aware of it. 
they, they, they do know that it's um, a benefit that they have access to equal. Uh, but again, when we look at the graphic breakdown that we opened with today, very small percentage of these men come from the North or Midwest where they're going to have access, standing uh, the law, help seeking the uh, pensions. When you have large number of formerly enslaved men who during the war are dying, their families may still be enslaved. They may not even know where their families are. And so there's going to be for the large percentage of black men serving during the war, less of an access or knowledge or ability. So I'm not sure that it's during the war that that's actually motivation. Now, after the war, we can have a whole different conversation about that, what it meant. But as far as a motivating factor, it's a small number who see that as a gain or benefit. And my final question is, where can people find out more about your work? So you can go to my website, kellydzurich.com. And I have links to my book on the 27th from Pause. I have other books where I have some chapters I've written on black soldiers who served as prison guards over Confederate soldiers. We have a chapter on black veterans who lived in Midwestern soldiers' homes. And then I also have some information uh, not only about research I'm working on, but also links to other resources, not only for people that are interested uh, generally, but also for teachers. And my current project, uh, which I am working on a book of letters, uh, private letters from Black soldiers to their families. So everything can be found there. Kelly, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed uh, this opportunity.